as you see me dancing. Um, but hopefully it's fine. Uh, so I'm going to just read from Luke 17, verses uh, 20 to 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, as Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. On the way in, John said to me, I'm glad it's you that had to preach it, this, this passage. Um, but then he was actually very encouraging to me, so I appreciate that. Thank you, John. Um, I'd like to consider four main points in relation to this passage before people start worrying. That doesn't necessarily mean the sermon's going to be longer than the typical three points. I'm just going to be dividing my time differently. So don't be concerned. Um, the four points I'd like to, to mention, the kingdom now and not yet, um, then our relationship to knowledge, our relationship to the future, and our relationship to the present. Um, so first, the kingdom now and not yet. I thought it was helpful a couple of weeks ago, David was speaking, and he pointed out the different groups that Jesus was speaking to in the passage that he read. Um, and that's good to remember, because when we're reading the Bible, although God can speak to us directly through the Bible. That always has an original context and original audience. And so helpful to think about who that is. So here Jesus speaks to two different groups. Again, he speaks to the Pharisees, who were the kind of religious zealots of their time, and his own disciples. The Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God will come. The kingdom of God is a primary theme of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. And at this point in Luke's Gospel, he's already said, uh, I'm getting this from Phil Whittle, who's a pastor. Is he a relational mission pastor, Phil Whittle? Yeah, got his from his blog. Um, the kingdom of God is good news. The kingdom of God is for the poor. The kingdom of God requires single-minded perseverance. The kingdom of God is sometimes small, but will have huge influence. Not everyone will enter the kingdom of God, but anyone from anywhere can. And there is a cost to joining the kingdom of God. So whilst the gospel narratives aren't necessarily always presented in a chronological order, I think it's reasonable to assume that the Pharisees have heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And in a favorable reading, they're asking for clarification. And in a kind of less favorable one, they're trying to catch him out on the details, which is what they often seem to do. So as with other occasions where the religious leaders question Jesus, they seem to have missed the point um, and their spirits because of their spiritual blindness. They seem to have in mind a future event, possibly a military conquest or an uprising, and they want to know when Jesus thinks it's going to take place. Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God is not coming 
with signs to be observed, but behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, don't look out for the signs that, Jesus, uh, that the kingdom is coming. Look at the kingdom in front of you now. Think about the context. Jesus is the king. He has lived, taught, and done signs and wonders among them. He is literally standing in front of them right now. That moment, he's standing in front of them. They're saying, when's the kingdom coming? But they don't recognize or acknowledge him as the king. So the answer is the kingdom is here now because Jesus, the king of kings, has come. But at the same time, the kingdom is not fully here yet. At this point in the biblical narrative, Jesus has not completed his mission. He's proclaimed good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that's to paraphrase Luke 4 and Isaiah 61, which is how Jesus talks about his ministry. However, he's yet to go to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. There, outside Jerusalem, Jesus will be crucified to deal with all that separates humanity from God. He will be buried in a tomb and on the third day rise from the dead, defeating sin and death. Forty days later, he will ascend to heaven to wait at the right hand of the Father until the day when he will return in victory to completely bring in the kingdom. And when Jesus returns, the kingdom will be fully present and established. Evil, sickness and death will be destroyed and God's people will enjoy him forever. Jesus knows that all this is coming and he wants to prepare his disciples for all these events. So he warns them. He warns them that there will be days ahead when he's not physically present with them. He warns them that they will long to see him, but they will not be able to. And they will need to be on their guard against people who claim that he's returned. He will come back for them, but even he does not know the day or the hour. They will need to be ready for him to return at any moment, and they will need to guard their hearts and minds in the meantime. So that was the moment with the disciples then. We're further along in history than the original disciples. Jesus has been crucified for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and he is at the right hand of the Father now. And he's with his church through his Holy Spirit. But he has not yet returned to usher in the fullness of God's kingdom on earth. So we also live in the now and the not yet. The kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. So I'd like to take what Jesus says in the rest of his words to the disciples and think how they can apply to us in our situation. We're going to briefly look at our relationship to knowledge, our relationship to the future, and our relationship to the present. So our relationship to knowledge. The first part of Jesus' warning to his disciples concerns the danger of listening to false messages about the day of his return. He will return, and when he does, it will be perfectly clear to everyone. So his disciples should guard their hearts and minds against rumors in the meantime. These words have been hugely helpful to the church in history and have hopefully prevented most Christians in the past from getting sucked into rumors and predictions about the date of Jesus' return. I'm quite hopeful that there's no one here that thinks they know exactly when Jesus is coming back. If there is, then speak to the elders. Um, you know, they <laughs> know the elders. Um, however, I do think there's a real danger for us still of getting sucked in by various kinds of rumors and conspiracies for modern Christians. Um, There's all kinds of sources out there which claim to teach us about the Bible, and they are not all good. The internet allows anyone to put their thoughts and teachings into the public realm, and it can be really hard to navigate the sea of messages. Not everything that claims to tell us about Jesus is something that we should listen to. It's not enough to just look for a Christian label. Even if something's produced by Christians, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And I would even say, even if something's on a Christian TV or radio network, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. 
In fact, even if something directly quotes the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right because passages can be misunderstood, taken out of context, or twisted to support ideas that aren't actually biblical. So we need to apply discernment. But how do we do this? Well, there's lots of threads to it. One thing I want to say is Vanessa reminded me there's an excellent book by Hannah Anderson called All That's Good, which is a really brilliant treatment of discernment from a positive perspective, looking at Paul's words to everything, all things that are good, think about these things. Um, so come to us afterwards, you want to reference there. Um, there's several threads to discernment. I think the one that I'd like to pick up now is that one that often gets overlooked in our atomized individualistic age is that discernment works best always in dialogue with other Christians in a local church community. It doesn't work best when it's me at home with the internet and the TV and things and just kind of my Bible and trying to navigate all of this stuff. God's given us each other and uh, there's a big difference between somebody that's teaching the Bible online or on a Christian TV show and somebody who you know. So, you know, let's think about the elders here. You know, we've got Steve Steve, David, and Bob. And like, we know these guys aren't perfect. And we know there might be things that they say occasionally that we think, oh, I'm not sure about that. But at the same time, we can look at the pattern of their lives and we can say, I know that these people have integrity. They're kind of there in front of us. I know that these people actually care for me, that they're not trying to build a platform. If they are, they're not doing very well. Um, but, <laughs> you know, because it's just us here in a room. But I think they're committed to caring for the local church and we know their lives. And that's very different. And then we can spin to each other as well. We think about people like John, people like Derek, so many people here that have life experience. We can say, look at the pattern of that person's life. Like, you know, I look at Fred and I think, okay, I, when I'm Fred's age, and I won't say what that is, I'm not actually, I've got a rough ballpark figure. Um, but I yeah, I want to be like Fred. You know, that's just, I wanna, and that applies to loads of you. I think, well, the pattern of your life bears that out. And so, um, that's where we do it. We do it in a local church community in relationships, so that, that's so important. I said more about that than I planned to, but I thought it was good. Um, so, um, while discernment's always necessary, there are particular things against which we should particularly be on our guard. So I'll pick out a couple. We should be very wary of anything that tries to look at current events in the light of biblical prophecies. Um, we should also be very wary of things that are claiming to reveal secrets or conspiracies or hidden knowledge. Um, it feels like we're living through the apogee of the conspiracy theory age. I hope we are, because I hope it doesn't get worse. Um, and it's important for Christians to abstain from such things. What's at stake? Well, getting sucked into these kind of things can damage our Christian walk and can damage our Christian witness. In terms of our own walk, it can lead us to fear and insecurity and to our attention being drawn away from the central things of the faith. God has not called us to worry about whether X current event is a sign of the end times. He's called us to trust in Jesus and love our neighbor until the end. In terms of our witness, it can cheapen our worlds and it can talk, cause people to write off what we actually have to say about the gospel, which is something we think is solid and we really believe in. Part of the solution is for each of us to recognize the limits of our knowledge. God's given us some things to know. However, there are others, such as the date of Jesus' return, which are not for any man to know. And there are still other things which people can know, but they're beyond their own personal area of expertise and knowledge. And about all these things, we're to be consciously agnostic or knowingly unknowing. We should be able to say, I don't know about that. Um, God's given us enough light to know him, to trust in Jesus as our saviour, and to walk obediently with him. So think about Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Um, so, and now our relationship to the future. So there's things about the future which we are not given to know. However, Jesus does want his disciples to know certain things about what will happen in order to prepare them. And here's the big headline. 
Jesus is coming back. That's the big headline. Um, and when he's coming back, he's coming as king of kings. Every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, his kingdom will be fully ushered in and all of the unjust kingdoms of this earth will end. He will bring in perfect justice, righteousness, and peace. But that day will be catastrophic for many. Jesus compares it to the story of Noah and the story of Lot in Genesis. In both cases, there was a day of judgment that was disastrous for most of the people, but one family was saved through trust in God. In the case of Noah, God looked at how deeply evil humanity had become, and he sent a flood to cleanse the earth. He chose Noah and instructed him to build an ark so that he and his family and two of every kind of creature would be saved and start a new creation. Noah trusted God and, it seems, spent years, even decades, building the ark in preparation, even though it must have seemed ridiculous to those people around him at the time. But then the flood came suddenly and only Noah was prepared. Jesus says to his disciples, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In the story of Lot, God chose to destroy Sodom, the city in which Lot was living, because as Genesis 18 verse 20 says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I think it's helpful to think about that word, the outcry. We're not talking about things where God's just going, oh, that's a, I don't like that. and just I'm, I, it's, this, is a, this is kind of unjust cities, unjust societies. Think about the outcry. There's people who are suffering as well. Um, and God chooses... He tells Abraham what he's going to do. He's going to destroy the city. Abraham intercedes on the city's behalf. And God agrees to spare the city if even ten righteous people in the whole city can be found. However, when the two angels visit the city, um, Lot is very keen to encourage them not to spend the night in the public square, to stay at my house. And then uh, it says in Genesis, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded Lot's house, and they demanded, essentially, that Lot handed over the two angelic visitors so they could be raped. Think about the kind of evil nature of that city. The angels blind the men outside Lot's house so that they were unable to break in, and they warn Lot to get rid of all his, get all his family together to escape the city before they destroy it. Um, I'm just going to pick up and read from Genesis 19, verse 15 through 26. Um, I'm sorry, it's not going to come up behind, so um, you might just have to listen. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot, Lot said to them, Oh no, my Lord, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord of out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back 
as she was told not to do, and she became a pillar of salt. Dramatic story. Jesus points to stories of Noah and Lot as a picture of a coming day of judgment that will affect everyone and from which many will not escape. You can see why John didn't want to preach on this passage, can't you? Um, Like these events, it will occur suddenly when people are not expecting it. They will be carrying on their normal lives, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, and marrying and being given in marriage, use Jesus' words in Luke 17, when the moment comes and they will not be prepared. For all of us as human beings, that day will be a definitive moment in our future, whether we think it or not and whether we think about it or not. At the same time, we don't have any control or even knowledge of when it will take place. It will happen at the time that God has appointed. All we can do is try and be prepared. Okay, so the final point um, is talking about our relationship to the present. So whilst it's good to have an idea what might be coming, we can't live in the future. We can only act in the present. Jesus is teaching about what will happen when he returns, and not only meant to mentally prepare us for, for when that moment comes that we know it's here, but to inform the way we live now so that we can start getting prepared now. And Jesus gives us two examples, gives his disciples and thus us, two examples to consider as we think about how to prepare ourselves for that day. There's one positive one to emulate and one negative one not to emulate. The positive example is Noah. He found favor with God, who graciously chose him and his family to be saved from the flood. When God told him to build an ark, he believed God, and his faith was evidenced in his actions, as he did all that God commanded him. Genesis 6, verse 22, he did all that God commanded him. He must have spent years or decades, as I said, building this ark. And this wasn't in a kind of nice society where presumably people would have politely asked, oh, what are you doing? That's very interesting. The world at the time was described as corrupt and filled with violence. So what faith for him to keep persevering for years and years, just trusting the word of God there. And when the moment came, he was ready because he had trusted in God before the flood. As the waters of judgment rose, Noah and his family were safe in the ark. They went into the waters, and they came out the other side to start um, safely, um, because their trust in God meant that they were in the ark. Our ark is Jesus Christ, who died for us, as uh, Peter says in 1 Peter, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, and then rose again to start a new creation. And we are the new creation in him if we trust in Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus are placed into Christ and they pass safely through the waters of death and judgment in him. And this is what's pictured in our baptism. The apostle, so to carry on in in 1 Peter, uh, he talks about the days of Noah when a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then Peter, the apostle, adds, baptism, which corresponds to this, Noah in the ark, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So to follow the example of Noah, we need to trust in Christ, be baptized in his name, and follow his commands. 
And then we've got the negative example. The negative example is Lot's wife. And Jesus urges his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Why? Well, when Lot's wife and her family were escaping Sodom, she disobeyed the angel's command not to look back. And she was destroyed along with the other inhabitants of the valley. Jesus does not want his disciples to act like her when they face a similar day. I believe that in that moment, her actions revealed that her heart was in Sodom. Reminds me a bit of Dr. Elsa Schneider in The Last Crusade. Uh, do we, Indiana Jones, have you seen Indiana Jones films? There you go, okay. What do we think? Is this the best one or do you prefer Raiders of the Lost Ark? If you say one of, if you say one of the others, then you have to leave the church. <laughs> that's not me, that's just what I assume Steve's position is. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I, I quite like The Last Crusade. I think I like The Last Crusade best. That's controversial. Um, so this is going to contain the odd spoiler, but you've had 33 years to see it. <laughs> So you can only blame yourselves, really, if, if you know, that spoils it. So there's Dr. Schneider has devoted... The, the film is about uh, trying to find the Holy Grail. So I'd like to clarify up front, we don't believe in that as a church. It's a kind of... That's not something I'm teaching, but that's what the film's about. Um, Dr. Schneider has devoted her life to searching for the Holy Grail, which um, when she and Indiana Jones find the Grail, she tries to take it out of the temple where it has to stay. It's not meant to leave the temple. And everything starts to quake and fall apart. It's one of those classic, you know, everything falling apart, cracks appearing in the floor kind of scenes. Um, Elsa stumbles, the grail slips out of her hand, and in attempting to recover it, she ends up basically dangling, dangling over a, a precipice with a kind of chas gaping chasm behind her. And Indy is holding onto her two gloved hands, trying to rescue her. But then she sees that the, the grail is just lying slightly below her. So she pulls one of her hands out of Indy's, who's trying to rescue her, reaches down for the grail, and then she's got her one remaining gloved hand. The hand slips out the glove, and she falls to her doom. Oh, there you go. So that's the spoiler, but I say you've had plenty of time. Um, so like Lot's wife, in the moment when she needed to be focused on being rescued, she made a catastrophic decision. And I believe that for both of them, Lot's wife and Dr. Elsa Schneider, um, who was also kind of working with the Nazis, so that was bad. Um, but for both of them, the roots of that decision were, were way before the moment, weren't they? So for Elsa Schneider, she's given her whole life to pursuing this ark. And it's the thing that her heart, not the ark, I'm mixing them up, I'm sorry, uh, the grail. And her heart is set on it. So in that moment where she needs to just kind of trust in being saved by Indy, she reaches for the grail and she's, she's lost. And then for Lot's wife, it seems as though her heart was set on Sodom. She had to take one lot last look at the city where her life had been comfortable and prosperous. And it cost her her life. Her actions also suggest a certain level of unbelief in the word of the angels. The angel told her what was happening. She seems not to have taken it as seriously as she should have. So one way that we can learn from the example of Lot's wife is to resolve to make better choices when the moment comes. If those big moments come of choice, resolve to make the good choice, make the right choice. But that can seem really difficult because we don't have control over the future. You know, I think, um, sometimes I think talk about future me and present me. And, um, but but like that, that future me, I can't control what future me is going to do in a moment. Um, and I think, well, when, when those sort of moments come, when I've got to make a big choice, will I make the right choice? 
So whilst we can't directly control what we'll, how we respond at any given point in the future, we can choose to set our hearts on the right things now. We all have to choose between the earthly city and the heavenly city. Essentially, our hearts can be set on earth or in heaven. And if I'm totally honest, I'd say even as a Christian, my heart is often set on earth. So how can I set my heart increasingly on heaven? How can we set our hearts increasingly on heaven? Um, I think there's, again, there's several things I could talk about, but given time, I think I'd just like to talk about Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I think this gives us a real opportunity. These words give us a great opportunity. Do you want your heart to be in heaven? Well, some of us think, oh, it's just, just my feelings. But there's actually, according to Jesus, there's things that we can do about that now. Start putting treasure in heaven. And the more treasure we put in heaven, the more our heart is going to be there. Do things that are about laying up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Invest in things that set your heart in heaven. I know I need to do this. So this is about money, but it's not only about money. You can invest time, energy, reputation, all kinds of fading earthly things to gain treasure in heaven. And here's a list that I thought I come up, uh, came up with that I thought ideas that you can do. So come to church when it's not comfortable. You're making a choice between the earthly city and the heavenly city. There's sometimes times when we legitimately can't come. So this isn't aimed at kind of guilt-tripping anybody, but these are just things to think about. Pray when we don't feel like it. That's a big one for me. I don't feel like it right now. Uh, give money when we're starting to feel the pinch. Give time when we're busy. Show kindness to people when there's nothing in it for us at an earthly level. Fast. That's my least favorite on the list, by the way. Um, abstain and mix, I think. <laughs> abstain from earthly pleasures. We've done like that so much either. Uh, cut out things in our lives that are starting to grip our hearts. So there are things that are good. And you think, oh, that's just, or just neutral, that's just an enjoyable thing. That's a hobby that I have. But sometimes we can feel that starting to grip our, my heart. And at that point, maybe we should kind of abstain from it. This can feel like a loss. But it's a loss of something fleeting to gain something permanent if we're trusting in Jesus' words. So the pastor and theologian, Andrew Wilson, he's got a really good illustration of this I heard. When he was younger, he was very clever. You said Andrew Wilson is a very clever guy. Um, when he was younger, he used to play Monopoly with his, his sister. And he would, get, um, he would sell his Monopoly money to his sister in the game for some of her real pocket money. <laughs> <laughs> So, which is clever, isn't it? So, for example, yeah, you can have a thousand of my Monopoly money. And she thinks, yes, I'm winning the game. And I'll take one, just one pound of your pocket money. And he knew that five, 500 or 100 Monopoly money, it can seem like a lot, but then the game ends and it's just worthless paper. But then he was left with a real solid pound coin that was worth something in the real world into which he emerged afterwards. And he says, well, this is a picture of our investing, you know, where we invest things. Setting up treasures in heaven. It's giving the monopoly money to get the solid thing that is going to be um, there at the end. 
So giving up things for God's kingdom can now can seem costly, but it is worth it, and it will help you set our hearts in, on heaven. Just to summarize, and I've got some questions to finish. Um, so to summarize, Jesus' kingdom is here now in part. And that it's here now in part is part of the reason why we can expect to see God working, but we wouldn't expect to see everything. We don't expect to see everything healed, everything perfect, because God's kingdom is going to be coming fully later. Jesus will return to fully establish the kingdom, and no one knows when that day will be. We need to live our lives now in the light of that future day and do things which set our hearts on Jesus and his kingdom. So questions to finish, and then we'll, uh, I will say hand over to worship leader, but we've got some song, songs today on there. Um, so hopefully hand over to Steve, but he's gone. Um, so questions to finish. Have you placed your trust in Jesus to bring you safely through the waters of judgment? Like Noah, have you trusted in Jesus, who's our true ark, to take us through the waters of judgment? And that's the biggest thing for us, isn't it, as Christians, to know, are we in the ark? Are we in, Christ? Are we in the ark that is Christ Jesus? Um, and with that, a little nudge about baptism, um, that we believe we're saved through faith. But the words that I read from First Peter are pretty strong on the importance of baptism. Um, that's a valuable thing to do. So if you, haven't been, if you call yourself a Christian but you haven't been baptized, we really encourage you to speak to the elders about that. Um, second question, where is your heart set? If you're really honest with yourself, would you say, is my heart on a daily basis set on earth or in heaven? And I think for me, often it's set on earth. So then, if you're like me, and you need to work to get your heart more set in heaven, what concrete things can you do to store up treasure in heaven so that your heart will be there also? We are not talking about earning salvation. We are saved through faith in Jesus. But we want to set our hearts in heaven. And what concrete things can we uh, do to set our hearts there? Perhaps on the things that I read or something else. What might God gently be calling you to do? When we grow, we grow in little baby steps. God is a father, and he doesn't say, you know, I don't say to my children, come on, you know, be perfect now, do all these things. What what is the kind of little step forward that God might be calling you to make in terms of setting treasures in heaven and having your heart less kind of gripping onto the earth and more attached to heaven? Okay. I'm going to pray, and then hopefully Steve will appear to to be in charge. Yeah, Father, thank you. Um, Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the the true ark in whom we're saved through, through faith. Thank you that to be saved, we just have to trust in you. And that we, you bring us safely through those waters of judgment. So the thing to, thing to think about isn't, you know, where are we in terms of some sort of end time calendar? The thing to think about is, yeah, is, is Jesus my ark? Is Jesus my savior? Um, thank, you that, uh, thank you for your words about where your treasure is there, your heart will be. Thank you, give us actually something we can do to put our hearts more in heaven. 
I just pray you'll give us grace for that, Lord. I know that in the moment in church, often I can feel like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And then I go home and think, oh, I'm a bit tired now. I'll have lunch. I'll look at my fancy football and then um, get, get distracted. And um, you've given us good things to enjoy. You've given us rest. But I pray that you would just um, speak to us, to each of us here, and speak to us and show us what are the, what are the steps you are calling us to take. Are there baby steps that you're calling us to take forward? Thank you, you say your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So I, I don't think you're calling everyone to become a monk and abstain from everything. But we just pray that you would speak to us. Help us to have our hearts open to you now and as kind of in, in the songs and going forward into week to just kind of think what are the things that you're calling us forward into. And just to, that ultimately it's about freedom and about us feeling kind of less tied down and clogged up with the things of this earth and more free to look forward to uh, future with you in heaven pray you would strengthen faith you know i know often i can have doubts and waver in certain things i just pray where people are saved and trusting in you lord i ask that you would strengthen faith pray you would encourage us encourage people that people we would not go away this morning christians who trust in you would not go away this morning thinking uh you know or, or will i be okay in that day but you say all who call on the name of the lord will be saved and we thank you that you know, we're not, we're not looking at our feelings. We're looking about the fact that you're faithful to your word and faithful to your promise. So just pray for encouragement. Um, I pray for kind of lightness and I pray for us to be able to think, how can we be even kind of, yeah, less pulled down by the things of this earth and more, more set on you, Lord. I'll say in your name. Amen.